Greetings to you from uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Dallas, Texas. It is good to be in your company this morning. Uh, the last time that uh, I preached at a church where Noah was serving, uh, it was in Tennessee, uh, the church where he was previous to being here. It was, uh, happened to be his fifth anniversary uh, on the day when I preached. And uh, from what I understand, today is his third anniversary, or this week is. So it's good to be in your company again, Noel. I'm, I'll be eager to see who's the fifth anniversary preacher. And... Uh, <laughs> really want to know why I got demoted. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 2 to 6. Uh, listen now for God's word as it comes to you and for you. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Holy wisdom, holy word. Please join me in prayer. God, take our meager words and give them meaning. Take our hearts and hold them open. Take our joy and make it full. Come, Holy Spirit, come, whether we are ready or not. Amen. This morning I have a, a simple and quaint sermon for uh, these complicated times that we live in. I beg your pardon in advance for uh, not offering any pastoral wisdom on the issues and challenges that animate most of our social discourse these days. Tonight, today, we look locally and we look closely. The title of this sermon is Sometimes You Have to Squint to See Jesus. This week, I learned that there are 400,000 children presently in foster care in the U.S. I also heard about Allison and Gerald Solomon who live here in Richmond with their three children. Gerald is a teacher and Allison is a pediatric nurse. Six years ago, they heard a call from God to open their home to foster kids. Since then, they have welcomed eight children into their family, into their home. Sometimes you do have to squint to see Jesus. Recently, I heard that 25 incarcerated persons at a California state prison in Los Angeles received their Bachelor of Arts degree in Communication Studies from California State University. You know, the Cal State system educates 477,000 students each year on 23 campuses. It was founded 163 years ago but that ceremony on October the 18th, 2021, was the first time the giant university conducted a graduation ceremony on the other side of the barbed wires. Sometimes you gotta squint to see Jesus. In Dallas, Texas last month, I watched a truck slow down in front of me and stop on a busy two-lane road. I was late on my way to be busy somewhere and so I was a little annoyed. Clearly, the driver had all the time in the world. He did not move until a bicycle pulled up right beside us. 
Riding that bike was a man toting a huge bag of aluminum cans hanging from his right handlebar. I recognized who he was. We'd passed him about 40 yards back. And the man in the truck got out, still blocking the road, by the way, and, and after a brief conversation and several hand gestures pointing in general directions, he loaded the bike in the bag of cans in the bed of his pickup truck, and the cyclist entered the cab. Sometimes you have to squint to see Jesus. In a pivotal moment of the gospel story, Jesus' most prominent supporter wants to know if we should be looking elsewhere for the Messiah. And as expected, Jesus tells him that he is the one. But sometimes you got to squint to see me. You got to squint to see through the false impressions and the lazy representations and the self-serving narratives and the watered-down witnesses of who I am. Jesus says, run and tell them this, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the lepers have clean skin, the dead are living, and the poor are no longer beat down with bad news. Still, I'm afraid that Jesus' definitive response has left me wondering why we are so confused about who it is that walks in the garden with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. See, y'all didn't know Presbyterians have been eavesdropping on y'all's hymns for a long time. John the baptizer is in prison. He's there as a result of King Herod's anger with John's constant prophetic badgering of the people in power. John was the forerunner of Jesus's ministry, a herald that the Hebrew Bible prophet Micah said would be a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus. John did his job too well, so well that he reluctantly baptized Jesus at Jesus's request but in his hard prison cell John is not concerned with his reputation out there on the streets prison does this for you it conveniently makes time for John to think about his work as a messenger preparing the way of the Lord and even though many interpreters early interpreters of this text refused to acknowledge it I don't mind saying the silent part out loud. I didn't come all the way from Dallas to be mealy-mouthed this morning. John is worried that he bet on the wrong horse. You see, the Messiah was supposed to set the prisoners free and inaugurate a new kingdom, but John is a prisoner of the same king that was in place when he passed the baton to Jesus. The one that John proclaimed would ensure all the evildoers like King Herod would burn in a never-ending fire. Sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus. And Jesus calls disciples to partner with him on the journey, but they have no influence at all. They're simple fishermen, and the task assigned to them by Jesus is not to set the world on fire by destroying evil, which was John's stated purpose, but it is to catch people in nets of salvation. 
sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus. John thought Jesus would be putting axes in the hands of his followers, but instead Jesus is just whispering in the ear to turn the other cheek. Sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus, and Jesus does miraculous deeds, but almost all of them occur in the backwoods of Galilee, far away from Jerusalem which is the strategic center of power in the place where a real Messiah would put on a display of strength. Why should those evil doers fear the Messiah if his powerful acts are performed in a place so far away from the halls of power that no one notices? Sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus and 11 chapters into Matthew's gospel, Jesus is surprisingly tame and subtle and apparently restrained resistance to evil has resulted in absolutely nothing that would indicate a kingdom is coming or has come already. John is in a cold heart prison cell. He has hit rock bottom. There in the darkness of his cell, where his freedom has already been stolen, he has plenty of time to wonder what happened. Is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for, or is there someone else? The messenger sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, a prophet in his own right who was talked about in the Hebrew Bible, has doubts about whether or not Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is out healing people in the sticks, but the basic structure of the kingdom has not changed at all. Nothing happened and now John's in prison and so he sends his own disciples to ask Jesus the obvious question. Are you the one who is to come or should we be waiting for another? Now, I don't know about you but it sounds like John is doubting Jesus's authenticity and and his doubts, John's doubts, were not received very well by the earliest interpreters of Matthew's gospel. Almost all of the early church fathers, like Augustine and Origen and Luther and Calvin, all said that a hero of the faith cannot ask a doubting question. This text made them very uncomfortable and so they consistently presented an interpretation that let John off the hook. They said he was merely asking on behalf of his disciples. It was the disciples, not John, that was curious or doubtful, they wrote. Now it is nice of them to add this footnote to history, but uh, John does not need them to protect his reputation, and we are not fools. Uh, we can read, and on one occasion or another, we have all silently asked the same question. When evil is ever-present, showing up in school classrooms and Fourth of July parades and movie theaters and nightclubs on the backs of 
or on the tips of arbitrarily aimed bullets, sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus. In a world where modernized countries have the technical expertise to design and build computers that fit in our pockets but don't have the moral proficiency to solve the problem of affordable housing, sometimes you do have to squint to see Jesus. And when the newspaper notes that the economy is maybe improving on one page and reports on the other that wages for all but the world's richest citizens have remained stagnant for 40 years. Sometimes you've got to squint to see Jesus. When access to cheap medicines and, and quality health care and cheap life-saving water and cheap life-saving education is still considered a miracle for too many people, sometimes you do have to squint to see Jesus. And I don't know if you've been counting, but it's been 2,022 Christmases uh, since the light of the world was born into the darkness to help us see. But, you know, we are still praying for the kingdom to come. Sometimes you have to squint to see Jesus. I will not fault you if you thank John this morning for asking the obvious question. Should we be still waiting? Or is someone else coming? You know, we never find out if uh, Jesus' response settled John's doubts. He, he said to go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. But Jesus doesn't say, tell John what I have done. He says, tell John what you hear and see. It's a curious way to respond, considering the alternatives might lend themselves to a stronger, more complete and simple response. Jesus could have said, tell him I healed the sick. Jesus could have said, tell him I give sight to the blind. Jesus could have said, tell him I raise the dead. Each of these would be an affirmation of what the Hebrew Bible prophets predicted that Jesus would do, but Jesus refuses to present the strongest defense by asserting that he was the miracle worker. Instead, he says to tell John what you hear and see. This is a roundabout way to get to the truth. The disciples John sent are asked to be eyewitnesses and tell John what they see, and Jesus invites them to recall their own stories of what they experienced while in Jesus's company back to John. Don't just take my word for it, Jesus says, see for yourself. We want to see, we need to see, but sometimes you got to squint to see Jesus. Now, if you were one of the disciples uh, that John sent to ask that obvious question, what have you heard and seen that would dispel John's doubts? Do you have a story to tell? A story that 
that you can see without squinting because the one that we often tell requires so little from us. We tell stories like, uh, Jesus is my best friend. He listens when I worry. And we tell stories like Jesus is a model human being who always did the right thing. And we tell stories like Jesus is the secret password into heaven, a place where I really want to go when I die. And we tell stories like Jesus is going to take care of the blind and the lame, the lepers and the deaf and the poor. So really it's optional. If I want to participate, I'll figure it out when I have the time. Church, is that a story worth telling? Is that all we have to say when the curious come running to ask, who is it? Is all we have to say, well, the Messiah makes me feel good. If that's all we've got, all, if all we've got is uh, our own after-school special starring us and our feelings, then I don't need to squint to see Jesus that is lounging with the lame and walking with the dead and holding the hand of the blind and bringing good news to the poor because he is not there. But thankfully there are some other stories that are being told. Now we're going to have to squint through our egos and, and through those moments where we say, oh my gosh, I'm crazy busy and I have so much to do. And we may have to squint through the dark of another silent lament that we're not good enough or beautiful enough or successful enough or Christian enough for God to love us. And you may have to squint through the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that comes with following the way of Jesus. And you may have to squint through tears because you know what it's like to love someone that's still blind or deaf, an outcast or poor and can't fix it themselves. Maybe that person is you. But if you squint, you will see that all things work together for good to those who love God. And so have you paid any attention to the miracle that happened across the street where the couple that was once on the verge of breaking up is now taking long walks together after dinner every single night. Have you seen the older adult that's quietly struggling with profound loneliness after two years of social distancing but still finds enough good reasons to get out of bed each morning and smile at the morning sun that is streaming through their bedroom window? Did you see the alcoholic who almost died 20 years ago in an all-night bender? Did you see him order water with his appetizer as he and his family celebrated 20 years of sobriety with a nice meal together? Did you see the young man who was dead to life, immune to joy, 
and waiting for it all to be over due to his depression, hug his children and find a therapist and come to life slowly right before your eyes. Did you see Jesus raise him from the dead? Jesus did not say, I'm the one you have been waiting for. He said, open your eyes and see for yourself. You may have to squint to see through the false impressions and the lazy representations and the self-serving narratives and the watered-down witnesses of who I am, but I am there. Now, go and tell someone you found. In the name of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.